Brick Moon Fiction presents Semantics by Brandon Easton, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. It was developed as the social evaluation module, eventually appearing as an app called Semantics. The new name was a strategically packaged branding solution meant to obscure its true intention. In the same way a clear plastic umbrella blocks sunlight, the repackaging fooled no one. Many understood what the Semantics app was truly designed to do, create an electronic cage for the African-American community. After the rape and murder of Jesse Cole by Roscoe Fellsworth, a mentally ill convict mistakenly paroled because of a computer error, the Justice for Jesse movement spread across the nation like wildfire. Jesse was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, 12-year-old debutante who went missing during a family picnic outside of Milwaukee. Roscoe had abducted her and live-streamed her horrific torture and sexual assault. Because Roscoe's identity and skin color was hidden by a bodysuit and mask, the mystery was made even more dramatic. Jessie's violated body was left in the middle of a urine-soaked alleyway, her bright orange clothing stained by blood and unspeakable fluids. A garbage collector took a photo of her corpse and the image went viral within minutes. The United States was stunned into silence and prayer, with hopes that the perpetrator would be captured immediately. Vigils popped up in every major city as the population waited breathlessly for the DNA analysis to be made public. In the hours before the revelation of the DNA results, many members of the black community waited in trepidation. For generations, there's been an unspoken decree amongst African Americans Whenever there's a horrific crime that captures the nation's imagination and attention, we hope that the criminal isn't black, because whenever that happens, we are all blamed for the crime. On October 13, 2042, at 11.15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the face of Roscoe Fellsworth appeared on electronic billboards in Times Square in New York City. By 11.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Fellsworth's face was on every HD screen on every computer monitor, laptop, smartphone, and television across the planet. At 11.22 a.m., a horde of white men and women spread across Yonkers, a suburb of New York City, and killed a group of African-American teenagers walking home from school. They were beaten to death with spiked baseball bats, pitchforks, and other farming equipment. Within hours of the Fellsworth reveal, African-American men, women, and children in all 50 states reported being attacked by groups of whites, Latinos, Asians, and other non-blacks. Dark-skinned Asians and Latinos in particular did everything they could publicly to distance themselves from the African-American populace, often leading the charge to destroy black neighborhoods and property. Survivors recall hearing the instigators shout, Justice for Jesse, as they committed their acts of violence and terror. In much of the country, police officers refused to protect black neighborhoods, and by nightfall, horrific images of lynched African Americans hanging from trees, lampposts, and street signs dotted the landscape. The shadows of history were laid bare again, this time without the slightest bit of empathy or regret. The proliferation of electronic media, the lack of critical thinking because of an eroded public educational system, Years of simmering ethnic distrust between blacks and recent immigrants, unchecked and imbalanced images of black outrageousness projected around the world, and a general societal disconnect sowed a perfect storm of hatred and anger that sprawled into murderous contempt for the African-American community. 
In spite of tremendous gains in the African-American population in the 2030s with home ownership, extremely high rates of college graduation, unprecedented success in STEM fields, and rock-bottom incarceration statistics, the public perception of black people was at an all-time low. The centuries-long racist drumbeat of right-wing pundits had carved out a canyon of misrepresentation that no amount of factual data could shake. It didn't matter how much a black person achieved, they were still considered less intelligent, less patriotic, were less mannered, and had less value than every other group in American society. Americans had become immune to reality. The nation descended into a five-day bloodbath, with the African-American population under constant siege. President Larchmont, a corporatist centrist Democrat with Native American ancestry, remained silent on the matter as members of the Department of Justice pleaded with her to issue an executive order to stop the madness. It wasn't until the United Nations threatened to intervene on the ground of human rights abuses that Larchmont took center stage and asked the American people to capitulate to the better angels of their nature. On the dawn of the sixth day, over 15,000 innocent black men, women, and children were murdered in the name of Jesse Cole. Middle-class black neighborhoods and businesses were razed to the ground, resulting in nearly $300 million in damage and nearly a billion dollars in lost revenue and assets. On the seventh day, House Representative Holcomb Scullersley stood on the floor of Congress with a solution to America's race problem. Scullersley presented a bill called Jesse's Law, it asked for the voluntary registration of all African Americans to a specialized database that indexed the street-level threat of an individual so that citizens could be aware of how to respond to their presence. The method of identifying a street-level threat would be cross-indexing a black person's educational achievement, personal financial holdings, military service, or lack thereof, ties to political organizations, past criminal infractions, and employment record with a complex psychological test. The aggregate sum of the testing and data evaluation resulted in a score that was color-coded. Green meant that you were a prime citizen, with no criminal record, no ties to underground activity, and you presented less than a 2% chance of engaging in street or property crime. Blue meant that you were a good citizen with limited educational experience, but no ties to gangs and criminal organization, and no past behaviors that suggested a penchant to engage in street crime. Yellow was trickier because any past misdemeanor was factored into the street threat algorithm. If a citizen had a standard educational background, high school graduate level, but had excessive debt, traffic violations, a juvenile arrest record, or any infraction deemed problematic by the law enforcement, a person could be considered a yellow candidate. Green, blue, and yellow were the good codes, while those under the yellow category fretted about their low evaluation, they fared better than anyone on the other side of the rainbow. Purple codes were those that had been arrested and served time in prison less than one year. Crimes such as vandalism, metro train fare evasion, and public intoxication were considered purple infractions. Once a citizen crossed over into the delinquent side of the spectrum, many of their basic rights were restricted. Purple citizens were unable to vote for a period not to exceed five years or apply for jobs beyond their grade. With automation replacing many blue-collar jobs in the new economy, countless Americans without college degrees or high-level skills in coding or engineering were forced to work in the service sector, with jobs ranging from municipal street sanitation to food associates, people who cleaned up tables and kept trash bins freshly emptied, 
in computerized fast food cafes. The grades ranged from one to ten. Nobody wanted to work a one-grade job. Luckily for the purples, their grade ranged between three and five. Orange citizens were those who served more than one year in prison, with crimes that ran the gamut from pickpocketing to grand theft auto to burglary. Property crimes without violence generally fell into this category. Orange codes had voting rights suspended for a period not to exceed ten years and extremely limited access to jobs. Their grade was firmly two. Then there were the red codes. Murderers, rapists, child molesters, terrorists, gang leaders, drug traffickers, and other felonies on the federal, state, and municipal charters were placed into this category. If someone had a red designation, there was little for them to do except stay inside their domicile and avoid further contact with the outside world. Red citizens were publicly shamed and feared. Their voting rights were revoked, and their access to jobs was limited to the one grade. The lack of upward mobility coupled with social disdain led to uncommonly high suicide rates in the red code population. With the socio-political scaffold of Jesse's law in place, there had to be a way to transmit the code designation to the general populace quickly. That's when the Department of Justice teamed with a Silicon Valley wonderkind named Carl Mantefort to create the social evaluation module. The SEM technology was converted into a mobile app that scanned an African-American citizen and displayed their color code, occupation, and other pertinent data on a smartphone, smartwatch, or smart contact lens. Mantefort believed that this would reduce the level of social anxiety caused by the presence of black people in public spaces around the nation. Mantefort claimed that Jesse's law wasn't a mandate, but a suggestion, so any African Americans who voluntarily submitted to the database would likely be in the green and blue range and had nothing to worry about. If anything, these were the black people who were tired of being mistreated and ostracized under the clouds of suspicion generated by citizens from the purple to red category. In Mantefor's opinion, with the SEM app fully embraced by private citizens, for the first time in history, the majority of the United States wouldn't be afraid of African Americans. The app went through multiple iterations before it was stable enough to be released to the public, since few would willingly submit to wearing hardware or being microchipped, the app would use facial recognition software culled from social media, the NSA, and hundreds of other sources that collected human data patterns over the last 50 years. Dubbed Semantics, the app was free to download from the U.S. cloud server and featured various pay-to-play enhancements like dating, chat rooms, and other options that fully revealed the background of random black citizens encountered on the street. The base version of semantics only detailed the color code of an African-American, but the elite experience gave you a biographical outline, family history, educational profile, and a breakdown of hobbies, personal interests, and career aspirations. The elite experience of semantics cost $89.99 U.S. and generated half billion dollars in two months. In the early days of the app's existence, there was vociferous resistance from civil rights groups civil libertarians, privacy advocates, and the hardcore conspiracy community. A motley band of historically dissimilar and diametrically opposed factions united in resistance to what they called an Orwellian, Luciferian, Faustian nightmare designed to break the social compact and usher in an age of racial hostility and mental slavery. While there was endless debate on both sides in the 24-hour news cycle, sales of the app continued to skyrocket. One year later, 
Semantics had over 150 million downloads and was a financial powerhouse. Carl Mantefor was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year and was considering political office in the next election cycle. Semantics became a cultural institution with video games, coloring books, children's merchandise, and even a cartoon series about the best ways to maintain a green and blue code. African Americans from all political, religious, and economic backgrounds who'd never committed a crime or been associated with unsavory activities reported a change in how they were treated by their fellow citizens. Now, instead of white women clutching their purses when random black men approached on the street, they'd do a quick scan on the semantics app and their body language would shift into relative comfort. Sometimes they'd share pleasantries. On a popular semantics commercial, a large black man with a blue coat said, You know, most of my life I dealt with people being afraid of me. Didn't matter what I wore, how I carried myself, or how much I smiled. Everyone treated me like a potential criminal. Now, with semantics, I can breathe a sigh of relief alongside other Americans. They've got nothing to fear from me. The commercial would cut to various African Americans shouting, They've got nothing to fear from me either. The commercials resembled pharmaceutical advertisements of the early 21st century, with simplistic testimonials from unskilled actors that gave the commercial an air of authenticity. It ended with the tagline, Semantics, when you want to be judged on the content of your character. Adam Williamson slammed his hand against the couch in disgust. Adam hated that damned semantics commercial. He thought, there should be a channel just for semantics and the endless masturbatory self-congratulation of Mantifor, who was being treated like the second coming of Christ. Adam cursed inwardly as he fidgeted uncomfortably on the small couch that smelled like tree bark, covered with cheap material that grated against his skin. Adam had been invited to this warehouse on the outskirts of town after receiving a strange email through the app. African Americans weren't allowed to access the elite level of the service. They were only given the base experience, which meant that they were aware of being scanned, but not who was doing it. Adam felt under siege every moment he stepped outside of his apartment, especially if he forgot to silence the notifications on his phone. His stomach dropped every time there was an electronic ping or the phone briefly vibrated. It meant that someone in the street assumed he was a potential threat and activated the SEM app to determine his threat potential. It was a private torture every black person with an orange coat had to endure. Adam had learned that African Americans with green, blue, and yellow codes were spared the indignity, as there was an option to temporarily silence the SEM app's scanning notification through paid subscription. Those with purple, orange, and red codes were treated like garbage, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. Or at least that's what Adam believed until he received this strange email last night from Timothy Capital XXX at semap.ddx to A. William 3443 at semap.ddx. Date Sunday, June 1st, 2055, 2136 p.m. Adam, I know of your situation. Bad luck. Bad timing. Do me a favor and you'll see sunny skies. Meet me at the Orleans building in the garment district at 12 noon, warehouse number 17. The door will be open. Take a seat. Your new friend. Timothy. Adam had no idea if this were a prank or an elaborate scheme to place him at the center of a criminal situation. The sunny skies comment was an allusion to a yellow code, and if there was a possibility for Adam to be reclassified into a more favorable category, he would take the chance. 
Adam entered warehouse number 17 to find a wide expanse of nothingness except for a single couch in front of a TV monitor on the far side of the room. The rectangular screen cast a cone-shaped patch of light a few meters into the darkness so that only the couch and the screen were illuminated. Adam warily crossed the dusty floor, his footsteps breaking the silence, echoing off the cavernous warehouse walls. Adam gingerly sat on the couch, expecting a trap door or an explosion to be triggered the moment his body settled into the cushions. He could see the headlines now. Orange Code Felon commits suicide bombing in local warehouse. His trepidation decreased slightly when his back rested against the couch, and there was only the droning, repetitive spiel of the semantics commercial. Right on time, Willie, a voice said from the darkness. Adam turned to see a human male silhouette slowly emerge into view. My name's Adam, not Willie, Adam said. I know that, the voice coughed out, but Addie sounds feminine. Wouldn't you agree? Adam stood, extending his hand. The man shook Adam's hand firmly, with some gusto. Timothy Calico, he said. Adam Williamson, but I guess you knew that. Adam and Timothy regarded each other for a moment. They might as well have been staring at a racially inverted funhouse mirror. Adam was six feet tall, a wiry frame punctuated by muscles in the arms and shoulders. He had a deep, healthy, rust-brown complexion, whereas Timothy was about five foot eight, pudgy around the sides, and needed a few days at the beach to give his pallid skin a hint of luster. Timothy wore a poorly tailored leisure suit that was too big for his frame, giving Timothy the look of a man who was melting into his clothing. Why are we here? Adam said. Timothy smirked and stepped away toward a panel of switches embedded in the wall. After a second or two, the lights of the warehouse blinked on as a rush of cool air flooded the space. Timothy dragged a plastic folding table to the couch and struggled to pull the legs to an upright position. He set the table in front of the couch, pulling a collapsible laptop from the folds of his jacket. The razor-thin computer unfurled like an old newspaper as the LED screen flashed to life. There was an image of Adam on the screen. He was dressed in prison gear. Adam frowned. His head shook involuntarily as his eyes danced over the image. Yeah, so what? Adam said. You've got an orange code that you don't deserve, Timothy said. Why are we here? Is this a new way for you folks to get your jollies? Playing games with the bad side of the rainbow? Timothy giggled. No, Adam, that's not why I'm here. Your case is one of the more interesting I've seen in the database. You were on your way to a full academic scholarship at the University of Maryland, and on the night before your graduation from high school, you decided to visit your cousin to personally deliver a hand-designed invitation. Once you arrived at his apartment, the police raided the complex to discover an illegal sex cream distribution ring in which your cousin was a high-ranking lieutenant, Timothy said. Adam's knuckles strained against his skin, so tight that they threatened to rip through. His teeth dug into his bottom lip, pausing at the point of drawing blood. Anyone could learn that from the app, Adam said. Yes, but the app doesn't say that heaps of evidence that would have cleared you from wrongdoing was purposely suppressed in order to maximize the number of convictions for the district attorney. You served two years of a fifteen-year sentence, released early because of exemplary behavior, but you're on probation for another thirteen years and classified as orange for an additional ten. At this rate, you wouldn't be considered a legitimate citizen until the age of fifty. Maybe. Adam's face was flushed with anger and disappointment. 
He lived through the hell of his wrongful conviction daily, but to have it rolled out before him like a carpet only gutted his self-esteem further. Timothy read Adam's body language. Now, to finally answer your question, we're here because I need you to do something for me, Timothy said. I'm not doing anything sexual. I had to fight off rapists in prison. I'm not into men, so... Timothy raised his hand in a gesture of agreement. Neither am I. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Adam stared at Timothy. It was clear that his patience was just about gone. Timothy straightened up, his eyes suddenly burning with confidence and clarity. Are you familiar with Mac Peterson? Timothy said. Mac? He's running for senator of Maryland, Adam said, almost sounding like a question. Yes, he's a front-runner, fiscal conservative, social liberal, running on a platform of common-sense policies, but definitely gaining steam on the unplug movement. The unplug movement is nothing but a hashtag revolution on social media. No one takes it seriously, Adam said. You may not take it seriously, but there's definite concern that the movement is re-energizing the original political base of advocates to amend or completely eradicate Jesse's law. If Jesse's law goes down, then the Semantics app dies along with it, and billions of dollars down the drain. Somehow I don't believe that Semantics is going anywhere. Why concern yourself with Peterson? Isn't he a green code? Even if he wins the election, no one can stop this juggernaut. You folks have finally gotten to control black people, and everyone's happy. Except black people, Adam said. Timothy pursed his lips into a sidelong grimace. You're half right. No one cared if black people suffered, but now the white minority is up in arms over Latino gangs in the Pacific Northwest. If Peterson is elected, he can't remove African Americans from the database but he can stop Jesse's law from growing to include the Latino population, a population nearing 110 million. I'm sure you can understand the potential revenue streams from the inclusion of that demographic into the database. Adam's mind was a hurricane of emotion. Deep down, Adam had always harbored considerable anger toward the Latino population for going along with the debasement of the black community. He believed that African Americans had opened the door for other ethnic groups to gain a foothold in American society, only to turn around and join the ranks of white supremacists once they got established. Blacks had paid the price in blood and flesh for centuries, fighting to secure a niche of comfort in a land that denied them basic humanity and then watched in horror as Asians, Latinos, and other groups entered the land with less resistance, bringing their own anti-black biases with them. Conversely, there had been many who fought alongside African Americans, shedding their own blood and tears in the fight for equality. Did they deserve to share our fate? Adam struggled with his own innate prejudices, compounded by the wounds of his current suffering, with the darkest corners of his heart wishing to share the pain and torment with those he had held partially responsible. I don't need much from you except a signature, Timothy said as he pulled out an envelope. Adam opened the envelope to see an affidavit stating that then-city council member Mac Peterson was intimately involved in the sale and distribution of the contraband sex cream known as Everlong. The cream was not regulated by the FDA and was classified as a Schedule I narcotic because of its addictive properties and the inability of major pharmaceutical corporations to mass-produce it effectively. Sign this, within a week your orange code will vanish forever. Your probation will be shortened from 13 years to 5 you will be eligible for jobs from grades 6 through 8. Adam's eyes narrowed. Who are you? I represent a variety of interests, 
Rest assured, my colleagues will make sure no further harm comes to the African-American community, Timothy said. Why me? Adam, you were supposed to be a green code. What were you going to major in? That's right, computer information systems and development. You don't belong with the riffraff. You know that. Your cousin knew that. The police knew that. The prosecutor, the judge, everyone knew you were being railroaded. But it didn't matter because you were just another black face to be paraded on the evening news as a menace to society. Your proximity to the crime and the fact that your cousin and Peterson were friends in high school gets this wrapped up in a neat little bow. Latino gangs have been around forever. How in the hell can you make an entire nation turn against them? Adam said. Timothy laughed. It was a sinister little chuckle. There's always a little blonde girl left unattended somewhere in the country. We've got operatives who specialize in juvenile atrocities. Jesse Cole was a sad casualty, but the context of American culture made it ridiculously easy to pin her violation on Roscoe Fellsworth all those years ago. Adam should have been shocked, but there was always something about the convenient scapegoating of Fellsworth that rang false. Adam recalled the conversations with elders of his family about how blacks were constantly framed for crimes committed by white men and women. You did that? Adam said. Personally, no. But the interests I represent steered public consciousness to a malleable position of fear and misunderstanding. Was it just about money? Partially. It was a necessary evil, Adam. As you grow older, you will begin to understand the nature of necessary evils. Racism is abhorrent, but it sells guns and security systems. If everyone got along, the economy would suffer, and the result would be worse than you imagine. Utopias don't sell. Without the friction of anxiety, nervousness, and panic, a social order becomes complacent. With complacency comes stagnation, and from stagnation comes decay. You're a smart guy. I'm certain you understand what I'm saying. I get it. You're a bunch of fascist, racist, elitist scumbags who will pit everyone against each other for sake of the almighty dollar, Adam said. You're a smart guy, Timothy said, flashing a self-satisfied grin. Timothy dropped a pen onto the table, the clattering plastic sounding like a bomb smashing into a building. Adam signed his name onto the affidavit. In a huff of contentment, Timothy quickly snatched up the envelope, stuffing it into his billowy jacket. Timothy extended his hand to Adam, but Adam remained still. By next week, expect a change in how you're treated. Within a month, you'll be back in the mainstream of productivity and consumption. Welcome to America, Adam Williamson. Timothy spun on his heels and exited the warehouse. Adam stared at the exit, then looked down at his hands as if he'd suddenly been unshackled from heavy chains. Adam waited another few minutes to be certain that Timothy was gone, and then peeled a thin, clear plastic sheath from his forehead. Adam carefully placed the plastic sheath on the table and slid his fingers across the surface. A static-filled image of Timothy stared back at him. Earlier portions of their conversation played out before his eyes. Adam allowed himself a smile as he realized how impactful the information he had would be for the social order. What Timothy didn't know was that Adam had received a full scholarship to the University of Maryland because he invented a camera system that could be applied directly to the flesh. Adam had designed it for extreme sports and the like, but eventually was approached by an adult entertainment company for use in various new pornographic technologies. Adam was going to implement the skin camera and his cousin's sex cream into a new generation of sex dolls, 
But his timing of his visit had been unfortunate, and his invention had been lost to public use and knowledge following his incarceration. Adam stepped outside of the warehouse and stared at the sky. He took a deep breath. The air was sweeter than it had been for him in years. He knew that revealing the truth of Jesse Cole would cause shockwaves felt around the planet. He knew it could potentially reverse a generation of racial goodwill created by the Semantics app. He knew it could spark a racial Armageddon unlike anything ever seen in history. He knew that the subjugation of African Americans had to end. He had no other choice. Adam had to plan his next moves carefully, with precision and logic. Adam had the next world in the palm of his hand. Brandon M. Easton is a professional writer based in Los Angeles, California. A native of Baltimore, Maryland, Brandon was a U.S. history and economics teacher in New York City for six years before moving to the West Coast in 2008. Brandon has written for the 2011 Thundercats reboot from WB Animation and Transformers Rescue Bots from Hasbro. Easton won the 2012 Glyph Award for his Shadow Law series and multiple 2014 Glyph Awards for the Watson and Holmes comic series and a 2014 Eisner Award nomination. The Watson and Holmes story was notable for covering issues of human sex trafficking and transgender abuse in New York City. He is also the producer, director, and writer of Brave New Souls documentary that explored the aspirations, inspirations, and obstacles faced by African-American speculative fiction creators in the 21st century. In 2015, Brandon was selected as one of the eight winners of the 2015 Disney ABC writing program, which led to his new position as a staff writer for season two of Marvel's Agent Carter. In 2016, Brandon was nominated for the second annual Dwayne McDuffie Award for Diversity in Comics for his acclaimed graphic novel, Andre the Giant, Closer to Heaven, which was recently optioned for a big-screen biopic. He also volunteers at JPL NASA as a solar system ambassador to increase astronomy education in underserved communities. In May, IDW Publishing announced Brandon as the writer for the Mask reboot comic book series that was released in November 2016 and Easton was announced as the writer for the new Vampire Hunter D comic book series. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes, or visit us at our webpage, brickmoonfiction.com.